The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. What I discovered while I was trying to find something new was that the proper way to write a screenplay had actually been codified 2,500 years ago. What Aristotle observes ultimately is that there's a right way to tell a story. Mm. There's something built into our DNA that not only requires us as a species to tell each other stories, but to tell them in a very particular way. And as writers, we need to know what that is. And if we divert from it, to know that there are going to be consequences and to be aware of those consequences. That's Hollywood screenwriter and professional script doctor Brian Price talking about his new book, Classical Storytelling and Contemporary Screenwriting, Aristotle and the Modern Scriptwriter. Brian went searching for a new system, and he found a very old one, 2,500 years old. We'll talk about how Aristotle's study of Greek tragedy has unlocked the secrets of storytelling, and how his observations can be used to understand everything from Casablanca to Spider-Man and Black Panther. I'm Jack Wilson, and this is the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. What a great show today. I know I often say that, but this one, this one truly is, you know. <laughs> you know, I'm aware that I overdo things at times. I just, I, I jump in, I get going, and I overdo it. I can't help it. It's how my mind works. Here's an example of this. Is, this is a classic Jack Wilson overdoing it story. I remember this feeling I had. Remember the first time this happened, I hadn't seen a friend of mine for a few years, and then I ran into him on the street, and I had once been friends with him, quite close, and I knew his parents and everything, so I wanted to say, how are your parents? But then I had this fleeting thought that maybe one of his parents had died or had been sick. I kind of vaguely remembered that, and so I didn't ask, how are your parents, because... I didn't want to seem insensitive. And so after that, it was a question that I just left out of my conversations with people. How are your parents? I never asked anyone because I thought, well, what if their parents have just died? What if something has just happened, some terrible tragedy, and I either forgot or it happened so recently I haven't heard yet, and I just, I should know that, even if I shouldn't. What if... What if it's bringing something up that would be uncomfortable? It would be terrible. So, I miss out on a lot of life. I don't hear about people's parents anymore. I miss out on the chance to connect with people because I'm afraid to ask something that might be uncomfortable or embarrassing. Whatever. I live with it. I overdo it. I overdo it. But that's not too bad, really. Here's what's worse. Here's where I take things a step further. I go to the next level. I got up last weekend. I was doing my family's taxes, which is always a pain, always laborious. 
Oh, it was a wake-up call that I'm broke and getting broker. <laughs> Bro, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That should be America's motto. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. But that's not the motto. That's not how we do things here. Our motto is, if you are broke, pay more taxes. <laughs> that's the motto. Anyway, I'm in this mood, locked in answering all the questions, trying to make sure I know what they're talking about, that I have all the forms in place. And I hear my wife from the kitchen and she calls out, hey, can you bring me a rubber band, please? Which would make me get up from where I'm sitting to go get a rubber band and walk it out to the kitchen. And so what pops into my head, I'm thinking about saying, well, hey, you have legs. Why don't you come in here and get it? But I don't say that. And I don't say it because the thought jumps into my head. What if something has happened to her legs? <laughs> it's my instinct. I'm back in the mindset of it's just like when I don't want to ask my friends about their parents in case something has happened. Didn't want to say something that might offend, something I might not know, something I might not have heard. But think about it. What are the odds that my wife, who I just saw upstairs 10 minutes ago, has lost her legs and come down the stairs somehow and is in the kitchen asking for a rubber band? What, <laughs> what kind of person would she be? Maybe she woke up. Oh, huh. Legs are gone. No more legs. Well, why don't I go haul myself down the steps and eat some cereal? So that's me. I overdo it. But I don't think I'm overdoing it by saying that today is a great episode. It's very fun and very fascinating. Aristotle, one of my heroes, wrote a book called The Poetics. And thousands of years later, we're still finding that his insights are relevant and useful we have a screenwriter, Brian Price, who's also the author of a book on screenwriting, who's here to tell us why that is. But first, let's read an email. Oh, I'm sorry. Maybe that will have to wait. Someone's at the door. Hello? Hello. This is Bartleby, the Scrivener. Hello, Bartleby. You might know me from the story by Herman Melville called Bartleby, the Scrivener. <laughs> I became famous for my catchphrase, I would prefer not to. So when that irritating chatterbox Jack Wilson asked me to contribute to his podcast, I replied that I would prefer not to. Then he asked me not to make a small monthly contribution. Well, naturally, I preferred not to not do that. So I signed up. <sighs> Won't you please join me in not not donating to the podcast? Hmm. Hello, Bartleby. Thank you for joining us today. This is the irritating chatterbox. Jack Wilson, I'm glad that when you talk, you keep writing, Bartleby. <laughs> 
Except isn't that the opposite of the real Bartleby? That he didn't write? So why is all the pen scratch? Why why are there so many pen scratchings? Scratchings. Why are there so many pen scratchings when Bartleby shows up? He was the scrivener who refused to scriven. Anyway, he's an old friend of the show who we had to trick into supporting us. Others, we did not trick. Others have supported us of their own free will. And you can join that club by visiting patreon.com slash literature. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash literature. Or if you'd rather make a one-time donation, you can go to historyofliterature.com slash shop. This week, we're thanking Maria, who signed up to be a patron and sent her love from Brazil. How awesome is that? <laughs> I love Brazil. And we're also thinking, thinking, we're also thanking new patron Adrian, who wrote one of the most beautiful messages I have ever received. Here's his email. Dear Jack, really appreciate the work you do to create the podcast. Literature is something I've only discovered and appreciated as an adult. I didn't take it at all seriously in school, probably because it was not math. Looking back, my younger self was far too naive. I discovered literature after finding my grandmother's copies of Greek tragedy in my parents' house. She had studied classics, but she had died before I was born, and I never knew her. Reading through her books and reading her notes was a special experience for me, to hear the echoes of thoughts of someone I had never known. The plays themselves were phenomenal. I enjoyed them more than I could have imagined when I picked up the dusty tomes. Since then, I've been obsessively going through different literary periods, from the Epic of Gilgamesh to Homer and the Icelandic sagas, and so on. Currently, I'm reading The Tale of Genji and Shakespeare. Your podcast really helps me discover more literature— something that I still cannot believe I didn't find valuable before now. Wow. What an amazing story. I love this story, Adrian. Actually, I think you should turn it into a screenplay. And when you need some tips, some screenwriting tips, you should check out a book that will take you all the way from those Greek tragedies that your grandmother loved and that you have recently found all the way to today. That book is written by today's guest, Brian Price. We'll have our conversation with Brian after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. 
The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Brian Price, a former Hollywood actor, a current screenwriter and script doctor, and the author of the new book, Classical Storytelling and Contemporary Screenwriting, Aristotle and the Modern Scriptwriter. Brian Price, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you, Jack. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, this is a treat. It's a subject that has fascinated me since college. I was I remember I was taking a course on Shakespeare, and the edition we were reading discussed the influence of Aristotle's theories on Shakespeare's plays. And I just loved the idea of an ancient expert in tragedy and put together some rules that someone 2,000 years later, and, and Shakespeare, a genius no less, had found to still be relevant, and he still wanted to make sure he, he wasn't breaking them, or if he knew he was breaking them, he knew why. I'm wondering, how did you first learn about the poetics? Were you already writing screenplays when you encountered the work? You know, when I was um, first considering switching careers from from saying other people's words to writing them myself, uh, I applied to the UCLA MFA screenwriting program. Mm. And only because I knew it by reputation that it was considered one of the better, maybe the best program in the the country. And it certainly had graduated a lot of very successful screenwriters. But I didn't really know all that much about screenwriting, Mm. uh, except that I I love movies. And one of the first things in that program, in fact, probably the very first thing they had us all do was read the poetics. And that was my very first uh, experience with them. And it was really the basis of everything else that was taught in that program. Oh, interesting. So you had a a professor who was already onto this idea that it, it could be useful for... Uh, screenwriters to take a look at the poetics? Well, interestingly, you know, I've found since, because I've taught at quite a few other programs, the poetics serves as the basis of a lot of the more uh, current and and successful programs. So it really wasn't one professor. I think Mm. somewhere all these professors got around and sat around and decided, oh, this is where it all began. Yeah, but it's it's. I would say it's common wisdom among screenwriters that it's basically the Bible, I guess, for screenwriters. Right. Well, that's interesting because uh, in your book you also talk about a lot of uh, screenwriting books and a lot of schemes and systems, and it seems like what you're doing in your book is a little bit different from that. True, true. I think there a lot of screenwriters between projects and, and maybe between classes uh, are trying to come up with the next hip approach to, yeah. to writing a screenplay. Right. So, so you know, whether it's a, a, a rainbow or a color swatch <laughs> or uh, a shape, um, right. you know, you, you keep finding out you can just do a search online and everybody seems to have come up with their new paradigm that if you just follow this, you'll, you'll have a successful screenplay. And I was first approached by a publisher who, who uh, I was running um, 
uh, an MFA screenwriting program at the Brooks Institute in Ventura, California. And they came to me and said, would you like to write a book on filmmaking? And I pitched some ideas about screenwriting and they immediately <laughs> turned them down. They were like, not another book on screenwriting. That's the last thing we need. <laughs> and so that kind of started my search for, well, what, what's the newfangled approach that I could come up with that a, that a publisher would be interested in, in uh, uh, publishing? And what I discovered while I was trying to find something new was that the proper way to write a screenplay had actually been codified 2,500 years ago. Mm. And so it was really just a matter of, of getting back to basics. And, and, and I'll admit that when I was at UCLA, they had us read poetics. I don't know if a lot of it sunk in. And, mm -hmm. and I've since found out from a lot of other screenwriters who have read it that um, it, it, it didn't necessarily have meaning to them. But I had a chance to go back and reinvestigate and rediscovered it and, and realized that so many of the things that I had learned or thought I had learned while working as a professional screenwriter were there. Mm. We existed right in that text. So yeah. it was really just a matter of, of, of rediscovering it and understanding finally what the lessons were in it. Yeah. And for people who maybe aren't familiar with it or maybe even aren't familiar with Aristotle... I mean, he was such a clear-eyed observer, and as I understand it, he basically just watched all of the tragedies and went to, you know, he was a, a theater goer, like like his peers, and he essentially just said, well, I'm going to write down what works and what doesn't, and I'll offer some ideas for why it works, and he, he wasn't starting, uh, as Plato might have, from a, a theoretical idea of a perfect play, but he was actually just observing the plays that worked and said, well, here's what they do, and here's here's the ones I've seen that aren't successful, and here's where I think those went wrong, and he basically just breaks everything down into simple elements. Exactly. He, he's looking for observable patterns, just like you say. He's mm. looking at the, the epic poems and the tragedies and the comedies, although his work on comedy we, we, it doesn't exist anymore so yeah. we have to kind of extrapolate what he might have written about it but yeah he's looking what are what are those common elements that that show up over and over again in the stories that are successful in the stories that survive that are absent in those that don't and so it, in a way you can look at at the way he deconstructs tragedy as really the first um the first manual in how to write a successful story. Yeah. So you break things down into what you call AGPs. So what are those? Well, in, in trying to find contemporary relevance to a lot of the things that he observed, I pull out some of, of what I call Aristotle's guiding precepts. Mm -hmm. And they are the, 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 the observations that he made about tragedy that are relevant to any story, to any dramatic narrative that you're telling, whether it's a joke or a commercial or a short story or a novel, or in, in the case of the book, specifically screenwriting. But the things that he observed that go into making a good story, those AGPs, those guiding precepts, uh, are relevant to Shakespeare. Like you said, they're relevant to Death of a Salesman. They're relevant to Star Wars and Black Panther because – what Aristotle observes ultimately is that there's a right way to tell a story. Mm. There's something built into our DNA that not only requires us as a species to tell each other stories, but to tell them in a very particular way. 
And as writers, we need to know what that is. And if we divert from it to know that there are going to be consequences and right. to be aware of those consequences. Right. Well, I'm glad uh, you explained this and you started to bridge something that I was going to ask. And I, I want to ask you for some specific examples of AGPs. But first, I want to just mention this bridging that I'm talking about. So famously, we don't have Aristotle's book on comedies. And so one of the things I was wondering about when I started thinking through your project is could it only apply to tragedies? Would it, you know, and, and we don't have many movies that are tragedies. We have so many with, you know, the happy endings. And so, or, or we have just different genres. We have romantic comedies or action movies. And so I was wondering if uh, your use of Aristotle would be limited to a certain, a very certain type of drama. Uh, but it sounds like you're able to apply it to pretty much any uh, script that a screenwriter might be working on. Yeah, that's kind of the, the the goal of the book is to apply these Aristotelian principles to any screenplay, any genre, comedy, drama, horror, sci-fi. And again, they're still relevant to a play, like I said, in a novel, in a short story. The, the things that he's observing are really about the experience of, of hearing a good story well told. Mm. So the emotion ultimately that's elicited by that story is really what determines the kind of, of, of narrative that it is. So if it's something that, that makes us weep, we may term it a tragedy. If it's something that makes us laugh, we're going to say that it's a comedy. If it's something that makes us scream, we say that it's horror. But the point that he makes is the fundamental function, the, the, the fundamental element that exists in every story is catharsis, is that it provides an emotional experience. Mm. And it doesn't matter ultimately what that emotional experience is, it has to provide it in order to be successful. Mm. And so you mentioned, along with catharsis, mimesis. So how do those two work together? Now, that's that's really the fundamental question of, of I don't want to say the argument that he makes, but, but his ultimate observation is not just what makes a good story, but he's trying to answer the question, why do we tell stories? Right. So, so he, he starts by, by saying that we've been telling stories to each other since we arrived on this planet, since we sat around the campfire telling the, the tale of that morning's great saber-toothed tiger hunt. And that these stories exist in every culture, in, in every part of the world, in every part of history. It's, it's one of the things that connects us all as human beings and that separates us from every other animal on the planet, that we tell stories. So mm. the question is, why? Is it just an entertainment? Is it just an opportunity to take a break from our lives for, for a few hours? Or is there something more profound at work? And and so he he begins the investigation by identifying these two elements that exist in every successful story, like you said, catharsis and mimesis. And mimesis uh, is something that he describes in a lot more detail than he does catharsis, so we can talk about that for a moment. It's usually translated as um, imitation or representation, and the idea is that humans alone on this planet are, are blessed with this joy in learning. 
that we have questions. We look at the sky. We wonder, why are we here? What is our place in the universe? What's the meaning of life? And we derive pleasure from seeking answers. And Aristotle makes the point that the way that we learn is through representation, Mm. through seeing ourselves and our world reflected back to us. So that would be one of the, the most important elements of a good story is that you've got to show the audience something of their world and their lives so that they can recognize their experiences up on that screen or up on that stage. Mm. But at the same time, and now we'll jump ahead a few thousand years, uh, you know, one of the smartest things that a, a screenwriting professor ever said to me was, nobody goes to the movies to learn something. We go to the movies to feel something. Mm. So that's where catharsis comes in. We go to the movies, we go to a play, we read a book, fiction, to have an emotional experience, to laugh, to cry, to scream. And so when you put those two elements together, what you get is that a good story is providing the joy of learning through the experience of feeling. Mm. And that's ultimately what the, the job of a screenwriter is. Yeah. You know, I have heard so many interviews with, um, uh, I guess, like the Seth Rogans of the world, and they'll say that that's what Judd Apatow taught them, or that's what his influence was <laughs> on them. You know that that they just had a right. they had you know a hundred pages of jokes, and everything was really funny. But then it was in shaping the screenplay. It was well, where's the emotion? What are the stakes? Where's you know what is this? What is this driving at? It seems like. It's it's the hardest part. Maybe it's it's sort of the the thing that a screenwriter has to unlock in order to have a successful screenplay. Very true. Ah, so I heard a couple of examples recently. Let me bounce these off you and see what you think. I don't know if you read this. There was an article recently, or maybe it was a blog post or something, but it was by uh, a screenwriter who had worked for uh, both Marvel and DC superhero movies. And he developed this theory and he said, here's why Marvel, here's why the Marvel ones are working and DC is less successful. And everybody poked holes in that, of course. But, you know, there's exceptions to those rules and stuff. But what he said struck me as really interesting. And I think it gets at what you're talking about with Mimesis. He said that DC movies have focused on the powers and Marvel has focused on the people. And, you know, a great example might be Superman, who basically he's very hard to identify with. And he comes on the screen fully formed. You know, he's already already in full command of all of his powers. And Marvel might have uh, Peter Parker, who we can put ourselves in those shoes or the Hulk who's wrestling with his anger or it gives us more of an insight into something we might be able to identify with. And. Uh, the reason why I kind of bring that example up is I I think I know the answer to what you would say, but one of the questions I had is, do we have any use for Aristotle or, or these theories at all when all the movies seem to be about comic book characters? Well, I'm going to give you the, the answer that I think you, you actually probably <laughs> answered it far better than, than I could, which is, yeah, Peter Parker. That's the yeah. answer, because yeah. that's the character that we can identify with. You know, Aristotle makes the point that, you know, when we're looking at a likeness, we derive pleasure from saying, you know, that is he. In mm. other words, there's a joy in figuring something out. But the truth is, what he was really getting at is that the joy is at looking at something and saying, that is me. 
Yeah. And when we're sitting in an audience, you know, in a theater or, or virtually on our couch watching Netflix or something, the, the experience is communal. And so we're really saying that is we, and that's part of the, the role of storytelling is to make us realize we're not alone with our experiences. We're not alone with our, our pain and our joy, but we're part of this, this larger community of, of human beings on this planet. And that's something that's important for us to grow and develop and evolve. Yeah. And it's good for us to do that, to have that experience and to, to exercise those powers of empathy. Exactly. Exactly. And, and boy, that is something that, that movies uniquely do. You know, I, yeah. I, I, I hesitate sometimes because, you know, if I'm talking at a bookstore or a library or something, and everybody's <laughs> huge fans of books, and I'm a huge fan of books. Right. But there's a difference when you're watching a movie than reading a book. And I don't think there's any form or, or medium of storytelling that can surpass movies in terms of giving us the opportunity to really step in someone else's shoes, to really wear someone else's skin and care about what they care about and fear what they fear and desire what they desire. And in a way, especially in, in, in the times that we're living right now, it's so important that we have that empathy, that we're able to recognize ourselves in each other. And, you know, one of the interesting things that Aristotle talks about is that the emotion that should ideally be generated in, uh, from a tragedy is mm -hmm. pity and fear, mm, yeah. pity and fear. And I think about those two emotions and how they relate to other non-tragic stories. And if you think about them, those are very two different responses because when you pity someone, yeah. you are standing outside of them and casting judgment about their situation. You're thinking they don't deserve their fate, but you are from a vantage point separate from them. When you feel fear, on the other hand, you are realizing that fate could befall you, that it's something that, that directly affects and impacts you in your life. So what Aristotle is getting at is, is in the best stories, if we're to solicit fear and, and pity, what we're doing to our audience is having them both observe and participate in the action. Yeah. And again, that's ideally what we as screenwriters need to provide for our audience. Yeah, and you could see how when two different emotions like that that could potentially be completely unrelated to each other, the way getting that calibration right in order to make a successful tragedy is you could see where scriptwriters would go wrong, right? And they would they right. would they would maybe have a tragedy and maybe you feel really sorry for them but you're not yourself uh engaging in the fear or you maybe don't feel sorry for them or and what you end up with is feeling about like you feel when you see a stormtrooper go down you know rather than <laughs> right <laughs> and and it goes right back to to your uh distinction between superman and peter parker you know one we're observing and and one we're actively engaged and participating in because we understand what it is to be a nerd, or we understand what it is to to, to want things beyond our uh, you know power control, or to to feel overwhelming responsibility when we, we really just want to go out and have a good time. All those things that are part of 
the the non-superpowered part of of Spider-Man yeah. are things that we can all relate to, and so we we can play that game of I'm watching him, I'm feeling for him, I hope he makes it through, and at the same time we're feeling I hope I make it through. And I think you know I think that's why they keep rebooting Spider-Man because the best part of <laughs> Spider-Man is where he starts to get his powers, and you think, oh man, imagine. If I woke up one day and suddenly I could climb on the walls and I could, you know, like, and I felt this sort of uh, strangeness of being able to shoot these webs and you feel this uh, trying to harness that power that you're growing into. I mean, I guess people have compared it to going through puberty as well, but it's sort of right to me. That's always the best part of the Spider-Man movie is the part where he is at home and suddenly realizes he can hear things a mile away and, you know, all of that. <laughs> All of the right. We're, we're not in Kansas gaining. anymore. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, so I heard another interesting thing that I thought would be interesting to bounce off you, and I just heard this the other day. It was an interview with Bill Hader. Do you know him? He's from the oh, I love uh, Bill. Hader. Yeah, yeah, Saturday Night Live. So he was talking about script writing, and he was telling the story about how he's working on this show, and he and the writers they had this idea where. There was going to be this this couple, they get together, they spend the night together, and then it's sort of a meet-cute kind of scenario. Mm-hmm. And their idea was that the woman would say, would mention that her laptop was broken. And so uh, they would spend the night together, and then the next day, he would go out and buy her a new laptop. And... And Bill Hader said that all of the guys in the writer's room thought, this is perfect. What a romantic gesture. Like, you can't get more romantic than that to go out and and purchase a laptop. And then they told all the women, and all the women were like, are you crazy? Like, I would be so (laughs) freaked out if I slept with a guy, and the next day he showed up with a brand new laptop that he wanted to give me. I would not take it. I would, you know. And so... What what was interesting was Bill Hader said their first thought was, oh, okay, we're going to have to revise this and, and come up with something that works. But then their second thought was, well, actually, this is a really interesting scenario because here's a guy who thinks that this is a really romantic gesture and it goes completely wrong. And it's sort yeah. of a, it's sort of more complicated. You know, it gives a more more complex emotion than if he just goes out and like brings back breakfast or, you know, does something that fits what they were originally trying to get. And they thought this is going to feel more real. It's going to be closer to life. It's going to be more interesting, but it's also going to be getting at some, some complexity of emotions that we weren't going to get if we just had him come in with, you know, half a dozen roses and she falls all over herself because she's so pleased that she found this, this romantic guy. It seems like on the one hand, you know, Hollywood gets blamed a lot for uh, uh, simple endings or happy endings or or simple, predictable stories. But it also seems like writers are out there really trying to to surprise us and to tell things in a new way and avoid cliches. And I'm wondering your perspective as a someone who not only writes screenplays but revises them. What kinds of things are you seeing come in the door, and what kind of work do they need? Usually when you're rewriting or polishing a screenplay, it comes down to one word, which is conflict. 
Mm. Conflict is the lifeblood of any drama, of any screenplay. And so usually what you're looking for is how can we make things more difficult for our protagonist? And yeah. it, it goes to the example you were just describing. I was I just going to say, that was, said, <laughs> that's Bill Hader. Exactly. That's what he found. He found conflict where he wasn't looking for it. <laughs> exactly. So, so I had a, a professor who, who used to say, uh, when you're writing a screenplay, you are God, but you are an Old Testament God. Mm. And what he meant with, by that was that what your job as a screenwriter is to torture your protagonist. And ultimately, the, yeah. the structure of any story is, is based around the character's objective. They want something desperately, and, and it's got tremendous stakes. So there are huge consequences for the character to fail to win the, the woman's heart or to find the treasure or win the battle or solve the crime or whatever the, the objective might be. And the screenwriter's primary job is to place those obstacles in that protagonist's path to make it as difficult as possible. And what you say about, you know, Hollywood sometimes getting blamed for, you know, happy endings. I, I think about the the movies and the stories that, that really are memorable that I really care about and that we as a, as a society think are worthwhile either artistically or, or commercially. And the ones where the character get what they gets, what they want at the end are really few and, and, and far in between hmm. because the truth is what makes the best ending. And this goes back to Aristotle as well, is that the hero ultimately doesn't get what he wants. He gets what he needs. Yeah. And that means that he has been missing something in his normal world at the beginning of the story. He's got some kind of a flaw or a missing piece that is going to require him to go on this journey. And so what's pulling us through the story is, you know, the Bill Hader character may want to, to win that, that woman's heart, but ultimately he's got to learn respect or he's got to learn selflessness or yeah. something that he's probably not even aware he's he's deficient in and usually what happens at the ending is the character gives up the thing that they wanted in order to to achieve something more important and those are really the best endings casablanca exactly oh, that's the hero yeah <laughs> that's that's the story <laughs> we're going to be talking about you know a couple hundred years from now yeah or the godfather has got that in it as well exactly uh Casablanca seems, now that I think about it, that seems like almost like a paradigmatic screenplay. Is that one uh, that's oh, taught often? Definitely, definitely. I mean, definitely up there. And, and, and you'd be surprised at how few students, uh, you know, have actually seen it. Maybe maybe it's not a surprise because it's old. It's black and white. It came out before Pulp Fiction. Yeah. That's usually the, the beginning mark for, for a lot of film students. Oh, um, but, right, right. <laughs> and they love the jumping around in time and kind of the the high low culture and the 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 humor and the this the shocking violence and the, and the crossing of genres yeah it's, yeah it's, it, in a way it's because they're sophisticated you know right. they 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 yep. the language of film changes and evolves you know you look at uh, the early westerns and compare it to something like unforgiven um you know there, there's a real transformation there's a real evolution and, and aristotle talks about that too he talks about the tragedies of his time are greatly evolved from from those of, of you know aeschylus and and mm. earlier mm -hmm. greek um classics 
And in, in terms of things like the use of a chorus, the use of song, the use of spectacle. So we need to acknowledge, and, and, and kind of this is the, the foundation of my book, is that that evolution has continued. And so when you look at a movie like Black Panther or, you know, one of the Star Wars movies or Three Billboards or Get Out, you know, one of my favorite movies of the year, hmm. you have to see it in that continuum of storytelling that goes all the way back to sitting around the campfire and telling the tale of the great saber-toothed tiger hunt. Yeah. Movies aren't anything new. They're just the newest expression of an exercise that we've been doing since we were on the planet. Right. So let's talk about the guiding precepts. And maybe you could give me an example of, I'm not sure how big or how small these guiding precepts are. So what would be one that you find particularly useful? Well, the one that we talked about earlier when we were discussing catharsis and mimesis, uh, that discussion turns into this truism about screenwriting, which is that to tell a good story effectively, we must A, show our audience something universal of themselves and their world reflected back to them. And through that identification, give them an emotional experience. Mm. So that's something that we discussed earlier. That's the foundation of this craft. Now right. we can get into some more you know, practical ways of going about that once we establish that that is the goal. So the very first thing that he says off the bat, and I'm going to be using you know, my own contemporary uh, uh, way of thinking of it, is the most important element of a screenplay is the story. Hmm. that's yeah. something that they teach you day one at UCLA. And it's something that, that students of mine will often debate. You know, they'll say, no, character is more important or theme is more important. Hmm. Aristotle addresses all the elements that go into a dramatic narrative. And his conclusion is you can be deficient in anything but story. Yeah. And if you have no story, it sucks. <laughs> but as long <laughs> as you have story, it doesn't matter what else you have. And, and that's certainly true. And in that story, and this is actually one of my favorite guiding precepts, he talks about the difference between history and drama. And he's mm. talking about that drama is of a higher, more philosophical order than the telling of history. And the difference between them is not that one is told in prose or one in verse, as was the, the, the way back in his time, but that History talks about what did happen, yeah. while drama talks about what may happen. Right. And so it's, it's more important when you're telling a story to deal with the possible, with the universal, than with the particular. So yeah. for me, that becomes the, the precept that in a good story, truth is much more important than facts. Yeah. And well, what we're right. getting at is... You know, I was, what we're getting at is, is the truth of the human experience. And when we see Oedipus Rex, what matters isn't that an historical figure named Oedipus Rex had these attributes and these things befell him and this was the outcome. What matters is that someone like Oedipus Rex, who had these kinds of attributes, may have had these things happen to him and these may have been the outcomes, so that when we're watching it, we're able to put ourselves in that experience. Because it's not just about what did happen, it's about the kinds of things that might happen. Right. 
Right. And it's, it's the emotion rather than just absorbing knowledge. Exactly. And, and Aristotle, one of my favorite quotes from Poetics is he actually defines dramatic narrative as the art of telling lies skillfully. <laughs> and I think about that all the time when I have a student yeah. who thinks if they, they could just get down on paper exactly how something happened to them. Something happened to them that was so interesting. If they could just get the dialogue exactly right and the, the description of it exactly the way it happened, it's going to be a brilliant screenplay. And I will tell them that screenplay is going to be horrible. Because nobody cares right. if that's what happened. That's the way it happened is never the reason to make a choice in a screenplay. The only reason to make a choice in a screenplay is because it makes the story better. It makes it more dramatic or more comedic or whatever it is that you're going for. So we tell lies when we write a screenplay, but we tell them to get at a higher truth. And that higher truth is about life and human experience. Right. Or Aristotle has, uh, in, in one place in the poetics, he says that character should be appropriate, for example. Like if he's, if he's supposed to be wise, you wouldn't have him be a young child. Or, you know, you sort of, you, you don't want to break that potential for mimesis. And if somebody is exactly. just trying to write down what happened, it's not necessarily going to resonate with the audience in the way that it would if you if you plan it so that it's something the audience can participate in. And that is absolutely true. And, and it's, it's interesting that you, you pulled out that quote because that is, uh, <laughs> that, that's almost a, one of the most controversial things that he says. The examples that he uses, of course, are very dated, very sexist, very racist. When he talks about a character needs to be appropriate, he, he talks about how you have to make sure you are endowing them with the attributes that that kind of person would have in life, in reality, like you said, for mimesis. So bravery in a woman is different than bravery for a man. You know, we, we can read this as a contemporary reader and take a lot of offense at some of the examples that he uses there. Right. But I think if you really, really delve deep into those various qualities, he's saying a, a good character needs to have in a story. And he talks about goodness, appropriateness, consistency. He, he, he's got quite yeah. a few. There's something that transcends all of them. And it goes back to what we were just saying, that story comes first. Every mm. other element of the drama is in service of the story. So you make choices about character that are going to best serve the story. So another reading of appropriate and it's an appropriate reading of appropriate, is that he isn't just saying the character should have the qualities that they would have in real life. He's saying the character should have the qualities that best serve your story. Yeah. So if you're writing a story about, um, let's say, a shark that's terrorizing a, a, a beach community, you don't want to have a protagonist who's this macho shark hunter who lives for this kind of challenge, you're not going to have any story. It's going to be over in the first 10 minutes. Instead, the appropriate character is someone who's never seen a shark in his life, who's terrified of the water, who gets seasick on a boat. That's the character that's going to give you the most conflict and ultimately that's going to serve your story. So those attributes turn out to be the most appropriate. Right. 
And the other problem with appropriate, that's a great example. The other problem with appropriate is, and I'm going to borrow this from uh, John Gardner, who wrote a, okay. a, a lot of yeah how-to fiction and, and how to write novels. And he has the phrase that fiction should be a vivid, continuous dream. And it's the it's the continuous part that I think having a character who's not appropriate or who's inconsistent or, you know, it, it kind of breaks that spell. And so suddenly, rather than being able to imagine yourself in the position of the character, you start thinking about the filmmaker or, you know, the 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 producers of the movie or why are they pushing right. me around like this? Why are they trying to exactly. to hit me over the head with this character's attributes, which I don't really, really believe in or, um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of broken out of that magic of watching a character do something on screen. You, you, you're hitting all my, my favorite bugaboos because I think there's there's no more danger in, in crafting a screenplay than creating a character who's purely functional, who's only acting to move the story where you need it to go because the audience is going to see through that and it's not going to be a real flesh and blood character, which again is, is one of the requirements according to Aristotle. That's got to be a three-dimensional living, breathing character that we can recognize on that screen and is not simply a construct to move the plot along. However, because the, the primary function of a character is to serve the story, you have to make sure that every action, every behavior, everything your character does is motivated in a way that your audience can relate to. And Aristotle talks a lot about the laws of, of probability and necessity, which means that we all operate in our lives with an understanding of the way things normally go. That if this happens, then this would necessarily or probably follow. And we need to make sure that in our screenplays, we are operating according to those same laws, which is not to say that we can't have surprises. We absolutely must have surprises. In fact, the fundamental plot elements that Aristotle talks about that are true in, in screenplays we write today are reversal and revelation. Mm. Every major event in a good story is a reversal or a revelation. A revelation meaning that we learn something new about a character in every beat of that story. Or the character themselves is learning something new in every beat of the story. And a, re a reversal he defines as uh, some kind of action that turns the story around to its opposite. Where, where we, How we tend to think of it these days is something unexpected will happen that will turn the story in a new and unexpected direction. Mm. And what gives a story its proper structure is that those biggest reversals are happening in the right places. Yeah. Now, those reversals, I say, are, are surprising, ideally, but at the same time, they need to be inevitable because they are caused by what came before it. And this may go back to your, your quote from, from, Gar from um, who was it, Gardner, you were quoting? Gardner, yeah. That every event in your story is caused by what preceded it and is causing what follows it. Mm. If you don't have that, your story is what Aristotle terms episodic. Mm. And mm -hmm. that's the worst kind of plot, where things are just happening due to happenstance, due to coincidence, 
once that first cause happens, once Peter Parker is bit by that spider, everything else is going to be connected until we get to that resolution without yeah. anything coincidental, without anything tangential. And one of the things, going back to your earlier story, what do you do when you're punching up a script? It's not just about increasing the conflict and raising the stakes, although that's important. It's also about taking away everything that isn't absolutely necessary. Yeah. Aristotle talks a lot about a story's got to have the proper magnitude. And ultimately what he concludes is a story's proper magnitude is that it is made up only of the events necessary to get from the beginning to the ending. That if there's anything you can take away without the entire thing collapsing like a house of cards, you need to take it away because it doesn't belong. Yeah. And it'll break that, that spell. Um, exactly. Uh, do you have in mind a, a kind of framework? It seems like with, with the reversal or, uh, I mean, I know that a lot of the screenwriting books will have things divided into three acts or, or we'll say, you know, by page 30 in the screenplay, this should happen. And, and with 20 pages to go, you should be on this part of the story. Do you have a, is there a, 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 a template like that that's useful for you? Or is it more, are you just looking to see if the elements are there and are working? I, I guess I saw somewhere in between the, the, the formula that page 17 needs to be this, page 45 has to be this. Yeah. On the other hand, there's a reason why stories throughout history have been told in a particular way. Aristotle talks about the three acts. For better or for worse, that's how stories are told. There's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end. And yeah. that may sound self-evident simply. And anything that moves through time is going to have a beginning, a middle, and an end, obviously. Right. But he, he very carefully and strictly defines what's accomplished in a beginning, in a middle, and an end. And, and we've kind of come to think of those three acts as the setup, the complications, and the resolution. And what that really means is, in the first part of your story, your character is going to adopt some kind of an objective. Things are going to happen that's going to cause them to want something that they didn't want before. That's going to move us into this second act, which is going to be the pursuit of that objective and all the obstacles that are going to be thrown in, in their way, which is ultimately going to lead up to the third act, the resolution, which will tell us whether or not they accomplished it or something else. Uh, you know, like I said earlier, they, they don't get what they want. They get what they need. Another way stories end, going back to Aristotle, is that that flawed character is either going to overcome their flaw or that flaw is going to overcome them. Mm. And that will be our, our resolution. And along the way, from in, in that general schematic of, of how stories are told, we do find consistently patterns in terms of the kinds of beats or events that happen throughout the story. So, you know, a writer like Sid Field or, 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 or Christopher Vogler, uh, you know, looking at, at myths and looking at stories and looking at movies, sees some of those patterns and, and, and creates, I don't want to call it a formula, but certainly a, a, an observable paradigm that we can draw from when we're writing our, our screenplays. And yeah. one of the things that I do kind of using Aristotle's definitions of, of structure and the various parts of the stories that he's observing, 
I, I break down contemporary movies, some like It Hot, E.T., Star Wars, Harold and Maude, Shawshank Redemption, Seven, Usual Suspects. I'm tr- I try to get in a whole bunch of different movies that seem on their face to have different kinds of structure and show how these same moments, these same ev- events, these beats are happening over and over and over again. And what I tell my students is you don't need to tell your story this way but you need to be aware that this is the way so many successful stories have been told right. and learn from that. Uh, I had a, a, a colleague at UCLA and we were talking about how students often bristle at the idea of, of structure, that, right. that there is this model or there is this tradition. And the way he put it, I loved his, his metaphor. He said, look, look at that parking lot out there. I see a Tesla and a Prius and I see a Range Rover and none of those cars look alike, but they all have round tires. Yeah. Why? Because round tires work. There's no reason to create another shape to make that car go yet. No one is going to uh, confuse one of them for the other. So to me, every story is going to be unique and ultimately is going to be told in the unique way it needs to be told. But we'd be foolish not to see that in the history of storytelling, a shape does emerge. Yeah. And, and I would think that someone who's uh, too rooted to the idea that, you know, on page 20, this must happen. And by page 50, this must happen. They'd be faced with a student who would say, well, that's great. I'm writing a 10 part series for Netflix. Um, you know, (laughs) what, what page should I put anything on? And, you know, it seems like going back to the basics and having an understanding of how things work and why the rules are the way they are would be giving that student a much better, uh, tool for them to use as they're putting together or revising the script they're working on. Well put. Yeah. Okay, so we are unfortunately running out of time. I could talk about this for hours, I think, and I would love to have you back on and just talk about some of your favorite movies or your favorite uh, screenplays. And what I'm really interested in are are draft screenplays and things where where certain things weren't working and then changes were made and it made the story work. And maybe we can find a few examples of that and, and go through them together. I think that would be fun. Oh, I'd love um, to. But I have a uh, surprise bonus question for you. Okay. Are you ready? Is this for all the money? <laughs> this is for all the money. Uh, here we go. One day, you take a lunch with an extremely wealthy Hollywood producer. He's so wealthy, he's surrounded himself with an air of mystery. He tells you that he's been attending seances recently, and he was privileged enough to work with the greatest medium he's ever seen. In short, they've been able to contact Aristotle who has agreed to work on a screenplay. Apparently, Aristotle is a little desperate for cash. The producer is going to give you a choice. Either you can write a screenplay and send it to Aristotle for his feedback and advice, or he will have Aristotle write a screenplay and send it to you for your script doctoring expertise. Which do you choose? Oh, man, this is a... a, uh... Sophie's choice. <laughs> I am going to write the original draft yeah. and let Aristotle tinker with it. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you why. 
Okay. I, I, I tell I tell my students that just like there are two kinds of, of gunslingers, the quick and the dead, there are two kinds of screenwriters. Those that are successful and those that quit. Mm. And I really feel that. I feel like if you keep at it, you're going to find some level of success. And the only thing that keeps you able to go at it is that you have something to say. Mm. So I think ultimately what it comes down to is a successful screenwriter has got to be passionate about what it is that they're saying. So when I take someone else's script, when Aristotle takes my script, he's going to hopefully take my vision, my creation and make it better. But that initial impulse, that initial desire, that initial commitment to a story that, that a writer feels strongly about can only come from that writer. Yeah. So I've got to write it first. Yeah. Okay. That's a good answer. Okay. The bo- <laughs> Did I win? <laughs> you doubled your money. Awesome. <laughs> the book is called Classical Storytelling and Contemporary Screenwriting, Aristotle and the Modern Scriptwriter. Brian Price, thank you so much for joining me today on the History of Literature. Jack, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay, there we go. How was that for you? Good? I loved it. I love talking about movies. And Brian is so smart. So much fun. Doesn't that make you want to read his book? And sign up for his class? And write the next Hollywood classic? I hope you remember to thank the History of Literature podcast during your speech at the Oscars. Here's what you should say. Thanks to mom and dad and my agent and Jack Wilson. That's J-A-C-K-E Wilson. (laughs) There's your speech already pre-written for you. Now all you have to do is write the screenplay so you can collect your prize. My thanks to Brian for joining me today and to Adrian and Maria, our new patrons. And of course, to you, dear listeners. I know I overdo it sometimes, but I can't say it enough. I'm so glad that you're here, listening away, and sometimes writing back to tell me how things are going for you. It lifts my spirits, and it warms my heart. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.